0: Well, today uh, we're going to start a little mini-series. We don't do a lot of topical stuff here. uh, And just to let you know, we're going to be doing four little messages on prayer. And uh, then we're going to go through the book of Titus. uh, And that should take us up through the end of the year. And uh, praying about doing the book of Romans after. Uh, the first of the year, so that kind of gives you an idea where we have are going uh, we 've been in Matthew for several years, so I kind of wanted to break it up with a little bit of um, uh, things that maybe the Lord uh, would have us to learn. But this morning, as we look at uh, the message, the man who bargained with God, uh, the topic obviously is uh, prayer and we 're going to be looking at several Old Testament um, uh, individuals. I saw this this morning. In the, uh, uh, the San Jose Mercury News, it was on the uh, lifestyle section. On Sundays, usually they have something spiritual there. It's not Christian in any way, but usually. But uh, the title is Family Ritual Brings Comfort. And it talks about this um, historic barrio in downtown Tucson known as El Toradito. And it's known as the Wishing Shrine. And it goes on and it talks about how their mother was suffering with cancer and, and uh, ever since they've been visiting this shrine and uh, paying homage to this shrine that they have found comfort in that. That they have uh, somehow felt that God was presence was there in that place. And uh, the article goes on and, and as I was reading that I thought how... How sad is that, that you have to visit a place or you have to go to a certain uh, locality to think that somehow God is is more there than with you? And uh, this morning, some of the songs we sang were dealing with the presence of God in our lives. And uh, as we go through these lessons on prayer, um, this is just as much... If not more so for me <laughs> than it is for you, because uh, if there's one area in the spiritual disciplines that I struggle in sometimes, it's it's simply prayer. And um, you would think that oh, you must pray all the time, and that's you know that life gets crowded and your schedule gets busy, and then pretty soon you you find yourself doing other things other than beseeching the Lord and. Um, a lot of that is, is just not acceptable. And so I, I want to encourage our hearts the next couple of weeks as we look to the subject of prayer. Uh, they took a survey one time, and they, they asked this question, what do you think the most important purpose of prayer is? Someone asked you, why do you pray? What's the purpose in prayer? Here's what the responses were. 24%, 27%, excuse me, said to seek God's guidance. said to thank God. 19% said to be close to God or the divine. 13% said to help others. 9% said to improve a person's life. 4% said other. I don't know what that is. And 5% had no clue. Uh, And you stop and you think of those statistics. And these weren't necessarily Christian people. But I think that sometimes I ask the question, why do people pray so little in the church and for the church and for the work of the church? If there's one meeting in any church that's the least attended meeting, generally it's the prayer meeting. We have one here every Sunday morning at 9.30. It meets over in the, the other rooms there by the fellowship hall. We pray specifically for this service. We pray that God would work somehow through this and uh, they have a monthly prayer meeting. The women do, I think, on Thursdays. Um, we pray here as a worship team before we begin to rehearse this in the mornings around 9. Um, we pray on Wednesday nights for each other after our study. Uh, but a lot of times when you look at the church calendar, the prayer meeting usually is the least attended and I, and I wonder why people in the church pray so little for the church. Because there's a lot to pray for. Would you agree? I mean, we're looking at the work of God, not only here in Redwood City through the ministries of our church, but also around the world. You think of the different missionaries we support in their work. You think of the different family members that you know who have yet to come to know the Lord. You think of neighbors and friends and relatives, all this there's so much stuff that we could pray for. The radio ministry, I mean, just continual uh, list. You could just have a continual list of things to pray for. And yet, sometimes I feel that we don't pray enough within the church for the ministries of our church um, some people answer that question and they say, well, maybe we need to have a, a prayer summit or a prayer seminar or we need to teach more about prayer or uh, all those things. You know, that they, they may be good choices and, and those things may help somewhat. But I think that it has to do with more just the will not to pray. A lack of maybe commitment. Um... I mean, a lot of people get excited about a lot of things. But I don't see a lot of people getting excited about prayer. The idea that somehow you can intercede with the God who created you and have an impact. And I think the reason that we don't see that commitment to that kind of ministry is simply, I'll be honest, we we don't believe our prayers will make a difference. We just don't believe it'll make a difference. And when you stop and you think, well, why, (laughs) why would you say that? Because I think sometimes we perceive prayer as a way to uh, change, you might say, our circumstances. Change what's going on in our life. Change our finances, change our marriage, change our relationship with our kids, change our kids, change our neighbors, change our job situation, whatever it might be. And so when we want something to change, well, then we've got to go to prayer. When really I think we should be looking at prayer as a way to change ourselves. That's really the perspective that we should have. Prayer is not for the purpose of changing our circumstances. Not that it doesn't. But I think more of the purpose of prayer is that we need to be changed how we relate to our circumstances. And that's so true. When we come into God's presence in worship and we begin to pray and and we ask for God's will to be done and we ask for all these things, somehow we are brought into conformity to his person. That's what should happen. And when that happens, it seems like our circumstances will become different because we will be bringing different attitudes to them. Because we're interceding with the God of the universe. Now, I do believe that God changes circumstances. I do believe that. I do believe that prayer can change things. Um, I prayed for people to become saved. And some of those prayers have been answered. I know some of you have prayed for family members for years. And all of a sudden... They come to know the Lord. Don't think for a moment that your prayers don't have an impact on that. See, we have to be careful with our theology sometimes. Do we believe that God sovereignly chooses who becomes saved? Absolutely. That's what his word teaches, without a doubt. Just read Ephesians 1. But you have to believe that God also chooses the methods that will be used to lead that person to salvation. One of those methods is prayer. One of those methods is evangelism. See, we can't get so caught up in the sovereignty of God that somehow we think what we do doesn't make any difference. That's very dangerous. That's called fatalism. That's not found in the Bible. Well, God chose everybody. He knows how it's all going to work out. You know, Why pray? Why do anything? See, sometimes God allows us to become part of his methods. And that's when he wants to use us. James 15. Or James 5.16. Look at that with me. James 5.16. Probably don't even have to look over there, but you can, because I think when you perceive it in your mind with the words written on the page, it's good. 5. Verse 16, the whole subject of this matter here is talking about prayer. Is anyone suffering, anyone uh, dealing with things, let them let him pray. It comes all the way down to verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's not an option. That's not a suggestion. That's a command that you may be healed. And then it says this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We know that verse, an effectual fervent prayer, that's the ESV. A lot of us have memorized it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth what? Much. See, lack of persistence in prayer will lead you to kind of just grow complacent. To think, oh well, why pray for anything when things are wrong? I think we've lost a lot of our passion when it comes to praying, when it comes to interceding. I think we've lost a lot of our anger. I don't know about you, but I get angry sometimes when things don't work out necessarily the way that I would desire. And it drives me to my knees even more. Found out this woman was missing. We're praying, praying, (laughs) boy just let her be lost let whatever well the worst possible scenario plays out so what do you do with that how do you justify praying boy god deliver this woman and all of a sudden she ends up dead in a river somewhere two little children orphaned that makes me angry but for one second, I don't think that our, the prayers are ineffective. We've lost that kind of passion. We've lost that desire to really... There's an evangelist named William Beterwolf, and he used to say this, we don't storm the throne of God as we used to. See, God loves heroic faith. God loves someone to come into his presence and and pray for something beyond what seems reasonable. Our prayers are really to rebel against what's going on in the world. And there's a lot of examples that that prayer actually works. I mean, all you have to do is look through Scripture. Prayer can make a difference. Prayer, Prayer can be effective. Think of Abraham, his servant, prayed for a wife, for Isaac. Rebekah appeared. Jacob wrestled, he prayed, he prevailed with the angel of the Lord. And afterwards Esau's mind was turned around from 20 years of revenge. Joshua prayed about Israel's defeat in battle at Ai. Achan's sin was discovered. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. You can go on and on. The idea is that prayer works, beloved. We have to remind ourselves. We have to believe that. When we pray for the lost of Redwood City, do we really believe that God is going to work and bring us into contact with those who have yet to know Christ so that we can share the gospel with them and see them gloriously saved? We don't do the saving. We're just the, the, the errand boy. We're just the, the, the waiter. We bring the meal to the table. But are we praying that God would prepare their hearts when they hear that gospel message? Are we praying that each each Sunday at 3.30 when the teaching of the word of God goes out across the Bay Area, 55 some thousand listeners, are we praying fervently that somehow God would, would touch people's hearts through the teaching of his word? Or have we kind of forgotten about it? It's easy to forget about. I try to listen to our program every week, not because I like to hear myself teach. It's, it's, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. But while that's going on, I'm praying. That's the only reason I do that. I just pray. Pray that somehow God would draw people's hearts to Christ. And God's Word specifically states that prayer is effective. We just read it in James 5.16. And we need to be reminded as we go through this series on prayer that, that prayer is one of the methods that God uses us in His complete sovereign control to carry out His will. See, if we forget that, somehow we're just kind of left out of the loop. I don't believe that God is some, some guy up in heaven that just orchestrates everything and, and sets us in the stands and says, now you just watch while I do what I do. That's not the God we serve. He doesn't call us to be spectators in our Christian faith, ever. He always calls us to get down on the field, to roll up our sleeves, and to get a little dirty for Christ. That's what he's called us to do. Why would you do that if you thought, well... Who cares? God's going to work everything out. Is God sovereign? Completely. Is He all powerful? Completely. You can't argue with that. And that gives us this dilemma, doesn't it? God answers prayer specifically and directly. Are you saying God won't do what He wants to do anyway if we don't pray? I mean, some people have gone so far down that road, beloved, that they even question the validity of prayer. It's kind of a fatalistic attitude. God's got it all worked out. So, I mean, what's the use of praying? We're not going to change his mind. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's God. He's sovereign. Brings the question, does God ever change his mind? Does prayer help make God do something other than what he had planned to do? These are hard questions. If we are persistent enough, will God let us have our way and override his own will? It's another question people ask. Does the Lord have to answer our prayers at all? Or is it just a frivolous exercise we go through? The questions, basically, about the relationship between prayer and God's will can be summed up in two questions. If God is sovereign, why pray? If God is sovereign, why pray? And if prayer is commanded, then how can God be sovereign? You say, well, are you going to give us the answers? (laughs) I believe there are answers to those questions. I really do. Unfortunately, I don't know what they are. (laughs) I'll just be honest with you. I have the slightest idea. I believe that prayer, as it relates to God's will, is one of the the greatest kind of paradoxes in Scripture. It's a tension. God's mind is infinite compared to our mind's. And that paradox poses an impossible dilemma for us in our logic. And I think it just shows that God in His majesty and His infinite knowledge, it demonstrates how far below that we are. His ways are not our ways. The secret things belong to the Lord. You could go on and on and on. I don't know how God uses prayer in relationship to His sovereign will. I don't understand that. And I never will till maybe one day I'm in glory and I see him face to face. But I think it's important that we kind of have a idea of what prayer is for. And you've heard this before, and this is just in way of introduction to our our thing here um, this morning. But when you talk about the purpose of prayer, why should we pray? You've heard the little acronym, Acts, right? Adoration. You start with adoration. You you express adoration to God. I mean, he's certainly worthy of our prayer, of our praise and of our prayers. Uh, We can praise God in song. We can praise God just in, in poetry. We can praise God in a myriad of different ways. We can praise God just talking to him. And over and over, we see examples of adoration and prayer. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. This is where Paul prayed for the Ephesians and he took time to praise God. That's what we should do. First thing is just have that, that heart of adoration. Secondly, confession. The idea that we should confess our sins. I mean, the, the neat thing with God is that there is mercy to be found in confessing one's sin. We looked at this a little bit last Wednesday night when Keith was doing a, uh, a study. We, talked about, uh, we were talking about 1 John 1, 9. And, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pointed out that, you know what, sometimes in the original language, that word if can even be translated since. See, it's not a condition. It's not a question of whether when you come to Christ and you've had your sins forgiven and you fall into sin again somehow. You do something that's dishonoring to the Lord. The idea is not whether or not you would go back and confess that to God. If you understand your position in Christ, you would run back to the throne of God to tell him, Hey, I am wrong. I confess this to you. Because you realize that there's not condemnation in Christ. There's just more forgiveness. There's more grace. And so it's really a a way of, of encouraging us to do just that, confessing our sins, saying the same thing God says about our sin. See, when we're in sin... And we're not confessing it. We're basically saying, God, I don't care what you say about this sin. Whether it's lying, whether it's gossiping, whether it's looking at something that's not honoring to the Lord, whether it's listening to something that's not honoring to the Lord, whatever it might be. When we continue in that behavior and say, "Ah, you know what, I'm not hurting anybody, just leave me alone. What are we doing? We're not saying the same thing that God says about that sin, whatever it might be. If he says it's dishonorable, if he calls sin, sin, that's what it is. See, and we live in a society today that refuses to call sin, sin. When you deal with the sin of homosexuality, it's not called a sin. What's it called? A different lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with it. That's the way they were born, they say. Which is totally outside of the bounds of Scripture. Scripture. It's just plain wrong. And I think what we need to understand is that when God created us in the beginning, there's no way he could have created somebody, as some of the, the uh, scientists say, with some missing chromosome or whatever, and, and causes them to be more, you know, feminine. God created them that way. No, if God created them that way, then we serve a God who made a mistake. Because if He created everybody that way, we wouldn't be here. Hello? I mean, it's, it's male and female, right? I mean, that's how we're here. With that being said, we need to reach out to that community and we need to share with them the gospel and the true love that comes through Christ. They need to hear the gospel message. That's the only thing that will transform their heart. We can't talk them into a Christianity. We can't talk them into a different lifestyle. Taking them to counseling is not... God has to do a work in their hearts, beloved. Take the blinders off. Transform their heart. Give them a new heart. A new mind. New desires. Gloriously save them from the depravity of their sin. When you look at that, that one sin, in and of itself, it seems like it kind of jumps out at us. And it, because of the society in which we live in, and because of all the the political stuff that's going on right now, it's almost like that that one sin is, is highlighted in some way. And yet, in Scripture, when we read lists of sins... Usually, it's thrown in there among the mixed of sins. It's not in bold print. It's not underlined. Why? Because it's a sin, like any other sin. It may have more devastating effects in a lot of ways, but that's basically what it is. So let's just call it what it is. And so this idea of adoration, then confession, confessing sins to God, saying the same thing. And then T is thanksgiving, offering thanksgiving, being thankful. Over and over throughout Scripture, we're told that we should have thankful hearts before God. And we're not going to go into all the examples that were given, but the last thing there in that little ACTS acronym is supplication. We encourage all to let our requests be made known unto God. Philippians 4, 6 says... Jesus, even himself, made supplication as he was crucified. Stephen also, when he was being stoned. So the idea of the purpose of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, all those things can be summarized for the purpose of prayer. Why do we pray? Because we're commanded to pray. How does it work within the sovereignty of God? I have no clue. One thing that's neat when you go to a foreign country, my nephew and I, when I was in college down in San Diego, we used to go to Tijuana almost every other weekend. You know, you get cheap lobster to eat, cheap food. And uh, we'd go down there. And I learned really quick that when you're walking around the streets of Tijuana, you could actually, you know, if a a, uh, uh, jacket or a pair of shoes said 20 bucks, you don't pay the 20 bucks, right? I mean, you barter with the guy. And some people don't realize this, but if the shop door is open, then they barter. If the shop door is closed, don't try to barter with them because they're not open to bartering at all. But if the shop door is open or it's out in the, the, uh, the, 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 the festival there, the, the, the street salesman and all that, you can barter with them. You, can, you know, you can get them down from $20 to $5 sometimes, but it's kind of a skill. I mean, I didn't know that at first Went down there was somebody that was familiar with that and went to buy one of those poncho things or whatever. And, you know, how much is this? Oh, $15. Oh, okay. You know, my friend's like, what are you doing? You don't, you don't pay full price down here. Well, what do you mean? And he showed me how you barter back and forth. I mean, your heart kind of breaks because it's like these poor people and you're thinking, well, but that's part of the deal, I guess. But you know what? What's interesting is you don't think of bartering with God. I mean, when you go down to Mexico or maybe you're, you're haggling over the price of a used car or something like that. You understand that, you know what? He has something you want, the merchandise. And you have something he wants, the money. And so you can kind of haggle about it, work back and forth. But when you stop in it, think about when it comes to God. He has everything. <laughs> he owns everything. So how could you imagine bargaining with the God of the universe. Well, that's what I want to, closing moments here, look at with you this morning. Because the first instance of, of intercessory prayer that's found in the Bible shows Abraham who's bargaining with God. It's back in Genesis. And it's, it's, it's so uh, such a, a neat illustration. Genesis 18. And at first you may think, when we read through this, that Abraham is a little bit uh, gutsy uh, to even suggest such a thing. I mean, who would would barter with the God of the, the universe, the creator of everything, the one who owns all that we see around us? But when you begin to examine this story with Abraham, you really discover that God was actually encouraging Abraham in this venture of prayer. Uh, God took the initiative by revealing his purpose to Abraham. By the way, Abraham's called his friend, and he was moved to pray based on what he knew about God's character for a certain city that teetered on the brink of judgment. And So the lesson this morning is basically about a man and the knowledge of God's purpose and God's Person And how that should move us to prayer for a world under judgment. So let's look at Genesis chapter 18, verses 16, down to 33. And I'm just going to read the text for us, and then we'll just make a couple brief points. But Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Then the man set out, Abraham, uh, from there, and they looked down toward uh, Sodom, and Abraham went with them. These are the, the two angels and uh, basically the Lord incarnate, a, a Christophany, you might say, of, of Christ in the Old Testament. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry That has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's concerned. He's concerned for this city. And in verse 24, he begins this process of bartering with God. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? See, he knows the character of God. Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Notice it says the whole place. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he answers, he says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. You see, Abraham is in this bartering thing with God. He's questioning what God is about to do. Verse 29, again he spoke to him and said, "Uh, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I I am undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Again, but this once. Suppose ten, ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Very interesting scenario. I mean, as Abraham was walking with these guests here, all the way back in verse 17, he hears the angel of the Lord, the Lord say, shall I hide from Abraham? Now, if you're in a group of people, and two people are off to the side, and they start whispering, and they're kind of looking at you, like, And you hear your name, does that pique your attention? Definitely. You're like, are they talking about me? You might, you might nudge over a little closer. Well, that's the scenario here. That's what Abraham is in the process here of hearing. He's, he's hearing the Lord talk about him and hear his name come up. And it got his attention. And then he begins to really talk about the, the, the covenant promises that he had made with Abraham. He chose him. He may command his children, his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. All this stuff he lays out for him very clearly. And he's speaking directly to Abraham. And Abraham picked up on the, the purpose of God's heart here. Based on his understanding of God's justice. Now who was in Sodom and Gomorrah? That Abraham knew. Lot. So he had a vested interest in what was going to happen to this city. And so he begins to appeal to God to spare Sodom. If there's 50 people there. Righteous people there. And from there... Abraham bargained. He bartered God down, despairing Sodom if there's ten righteous people there. I think this story reveals three lessons on prayer. Prayer is communicating with God. That's what Abraham was doing here. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is prayer must be based on the knowledge of God's purposes. Prayer has to be based on the knowledge of God's purposes. Prayer is not to get our will, as I said earlier, but prayer is to get God's will done, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To be effective, prayer must be in accordance with His will. If we want to be successful in prayer, we must grow in our knowledge of God's purpose. What's God's purpose? How do you do that? Well, the first thing is that we see in Scripture that God reveals his purposes to his friends. Abraham was known as a friend of God. Second Chronicles 27 tells us that. I think it's important that we understand that we too are known as a friend of God. Even in James 2.23, it says the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a what? A friend of God. Verse 19 is where we get that. It says, for I have chosen him or I have known him is the idea. One commentator translates it this way. He says, for I acknowledge him to be my intimate friend. That's what God says thought of Abraham the Lord shares his secrets with his friends Psalm 25:14 says the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant The Lord Jesus even told his own disciples in John 15:15 15, 15, no longer will you be called slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I have called you what friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Why? Because they were friends of Christ. And you know what? You see that principle even in our everyday life. I mean, if you were just standing in a store line and somebody came up to you and started talking to you and you didn't know them from a hole in the ground and they started sharing very intimate things with you, how would you feel? You'd probably feel a little uncomfortable. You'd probably say, why is this person sharing this stuff with me? I don't even know this person. See, we share the secret things in our lives with only our friends who've earned our trust. In the same way, God reveals His will to those who are trustworthy, to those who don't abuse that privilege. So if you want to know God's purpose so that you can pray accordingly, you've got to live obediently in the fear of God so that you're worthy of His trust. You have to have a relationship with it. I mean, when you think about it, back then when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire, the pagans living in the surrounding area looked at it and thought, oh boy, what an unfortunate natural disaster that was. You know, if something like that happened today in our, de- in our time, there'd be footage on the news And you'd have geologists and and scientists lined up on, on how this occurred. You wouldn't hear on the nightly news, this event happened because it was a judgment upon an unholy people by a holy God. The world can't appreciate God's purposes. But Abraham knew that Sodom's destruction was not a natural disaster. It was a direct judgment of a holy God on a people who really had spurned him time and time again. He knew that it was a a warning for people of all time. While God is patient, and he is, he will certainly judge sin. You look at our nation, God's patience is running out, beloved. Beloved. We're coming to the end of time here as we know it in the United States, this wonderful country. And when you look at all the political scenario and you think of the things that are unfolding, it's very unfortunate. But you know what? When I read Bible prophecy, I don't see the United States mentioned. Sad. So Abraham interpreted all these events because he was a friend of God and he knew the purpose of God. You want to have that kind of insight you have to you have to take time to grow in god's word you have to take time to become his intimate friend don't just think oh i walked an aisle, raised a hand i'm a christian so be it no you should be growing in your christian life each and every day closer to him more like him he's conforming you into the image of his son I always like to ask people when they say, Oh, yeah, you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, when I was two, I raised my hand in a service and made a commitment. Well, that's fine. But what has God done for you recently? That's what I want to know. Because if he hasn't done anything for you from that time on, you may not be saved. You really want to question that. The Bible calls us to question that. Be sure that you're in the faith. Secondly, God's purpose is to bless all nations through Abraham's seed. Okay? But not... To save all from judgment. To bless all nations through Abraham's seed, but not to save all from judgment. God reveals his purposes to his friends, but God's purpose is to bless all nations through Abraham's seed, but not to save all from judgment. He rehearses his covenant with Abraham as a reason for sharing with him his purpose in judging Sodom. You stop and you say, well, if that's God's purpose, then why would he destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why in Moses' day would he command the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites? How can his purpose of blessing be fulfilled if people are literally destroyed? See, God is showing Abraham, and he's showing us too, that though he will have some from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, bowing before his throne one day, it's not God's purpose to save every person from judgment. That would violate the holiness and justice of God if everyone one day was saved. In spite of and apart from the response to the Savior. That's why when you hear some Christian teachers when asked very bluntly, well, do you think that a Muslim is going to heaven? And they vaguely answer the question, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm sure their God, you know, can understand, and and I'm sure God will will kind of work it all, they they won't say no to that question. There's only one way, there's only one door, there's only one truth that leads to heaven, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Narrow way, yes, it is, but that's what God said, that's what Christ said. And it's hard to get through that narrow gate, it's not easy. It's a struggle. We need to be reminded of that. The subject of God's eternal judgment is not popular in our day. It's just not. Some, even evangelical teachers, are teaching that, well, when the sinner dies, they're just annihilated. There's no real hell, there's no real lake of fire that's for all eternity. In addition to being grossly unbiblical, it just underestimates the infinite holiness of God, and it grossly overestimates the goodness of man. See, the Bible says that, you know what our goodness amounts to? Filthy rags. Filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. In his sermon, The Justice of God and the Damnation of sinner Sinners, the works Of Jonathan Edwards, he argues that since God is infinitely perfect and holy, being any sin against him is an infinitely horrible offense that justly deserves infinite punishment. He shows how all sinners tend to have too high a view of themselves and too low a view of the infinite perfection and holiness of God. And by the time you get to the end of the sermon, he has powerfully shown... That none, none are deserving of heaven. And that God would be totally, perfectly just and damning us all to hell. We forget that. But in His mercy, in His grace, He has made a way through the Lord Jesus Christ to save all who put their faith, their trust in Him. You have to understand that. And so Abraham began his encounter with the lord with an overinflated view of the people of sodom. Oh, there's got to be at least 50 there, lord. No. 45, 40, 30, 35. Come on, there's got to be 10. No. As it was, there was only barely one righteous man in that that whole city. And you know what as you grow closer to god in prayer, you know what he does? He reveals to you not only his infinite holiness, but he really shows you the the horribleness of your sin. He shows you what a gracious act it was that he would save somebody like you or me. And we begin to understand that there's none righteous, not even one. Sing a little chorus, the scripture says, if the Lord should count iniquities, none could stand before him. So when you begin to pray that God would mercifully call out from this sinful world a people for his own glory, you begin to understand that it's God's work. It's not us going out with tracts trying to convert people. It's God doing that work through us. And we need to rely on his power and his word and his truth. But you know what? We still have to go. We're called to that. As he saw the sin of Sodom, he cried out for his mercy on our land that he would not enter into judgment. We think of the United States of America. We need to pray for our country. We don't give up on it. We pray for it. Pray for our leaders. Pray that somehow the truth of the gospel would penetrate their hearts. Because the judge of all earth always deals justly. Thirdly, their God's purpose is handed down through the families of his elect. Verse 19 says, For I have chosen him in order that he may command, look at this, his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. See the interplay here between God's sovereign, gracious covenant with Abraham and the requirement of Abraham to do what God has called him to do so that his covenant promises would be fulfilled. He didn't say, Abraham, okay, I chose you. All you got to do is sit back in your arms of grace and don't worry about a thing. i got everything covered. No, he said, you know what? You have to be diligent to teach your children. There's always a tension between God's sovereign purposes and our responsibility. To bring about those purposes. The point here is that the family is essential. In God's purpose of blessing all nations through Christ the seed of Abraham. Parents. Those of you who are saved. Those who God has chosen and called to salvation. You know what? You're responsible to teach your children to live in accord to God's ways. You're responsible to teach them. The importance of prayer. Not just praying over a meal. Not just praying before they go to bed. But use that as a tool to pray with them throughout the day. Maybe they're struggling with their schoolwork and they can't get it. Stop and pray with them. See, if you believe that God will answer those prayers, you'll do it. And it's a good model for your own children. You need to pray for individuals, for nations. For nations. That God would withhold his judgment. And we can give that model to our children. Secondly, prayer must proceed according to the knowledge of God's person. Not only his purpose, but his his person. Being a friend of God, Abraham knew, including his character and his attributes. He knew everything that there was to know about God at this point. And that knowledge drew him into prayer. I mean, to the point where he was bold enough to bargain with God. This wasn't a timid prayer. This wasn't a timid conversation between him and God. You can, you can sense it in his words. Hey, Lord, don't get angry, but I'm coming back to you another time. Hey, Lord, you know, be patient with me here. First point there is God's grace encourages us to draw near in prayer. When you first look at this story, it almost looks like Abraham's taking the initiative with God. But the more carefully you look at it, it reveals that the Lord took the initiative with Abraham. Verse 17 to 21, he first broached the subject. In verse 22, he then waited for Abraham's appeal after the two angels left. In verse 24 to 32, he drew Abraham on from, down from, 50 all the way down to 10. And then ultimately at verse 33, God basically closes up the conversation and said, okay, we're done now. And the picture here is that God was almost like a delighted parent holding up his infant and then letting him go and stepping back so that the child has to take a step forward toward the parent. I mean, when your child first takes that step, what do you do? Okay, great, stop, that's it. No, come on, let's do it again. You encourage it. God wants to encourage our hearts to prayer. Now, Abraham's prayer wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. He was concerned that if, if, if God struck down the righteous along with the wicked, he was concerned about that. He would look bad in the eyes of the world. See, Abraham erred there. In what God's temporal judgment sometimes falls on both the righteous and the wicked. Luke 13, 1-5, you can look at that. But the judge of all the earth always does right, no matter what it may seem to our sinful hearts. But even though his prayer wasn't perfect, God graciously kept nudging him along. In the same way, he wants to encourage us through his grace to come before his throne over and over again, knowing that he will receive us as a loving father receives a son even if our prayers aren't perfect it's a matter of the heart secondly god's holiness and power check us from irreverence in prayer sometimes i hear people pray and i just cringe well you know we're we're here this morning we lord we just want to address you as the man upstairs or you know you've heard things like that that's irreverent we shouldn't address god that way God graciously receives us as his children, yet we dare not irreverently or brashly come into his presence. He's a holy God who judges all sin. He's all-powerful. He can easily call down fire and brimstone and just wipe us out. But we as his children can come, the Bible says, confidently. Hebrews tells us that we can come confidently before his throne. But at the same time, as Abraham reminded himself here in verse 27, Hey, I'm but dust and ashes. Who am I to address you, God? This is the God who spoke everything we see into existence. There's a sense of humility here that Abraham had. There's a sense of humility that's required of us. What's true humility? True humility is simply this. Seeing ourselves as absolutely destitute and seeing God as all-sufficient. Seeing ourselves as absolutely destitute. You're at the bottom of the the bottom. There's nowhere else to go but up. And you see God as your way up. You see God as that all-sufficient provider. See, that's the foundation of true prayer. We don't come to God as a competent people who just need a little bit of help. That's our attitude sometimes, isn't it? I can't figure this out. Maybe I'll go to God now after I've tried and tried and tried. We don't want to go into God's presence and command God what to do. As some of the word word of faith teachers say, that's wrong. Name it and claim it, that kind of attitude. Oh God, I command you to do this, I command you to do that. Who do they think they are? See, we come with an awareness of our frailty and our desperate need and with a reverence for God's awesome power and holiness, yet with the confidence... That because he is gracious, he will hear our prayers. Thirdly, God's mercy and justice gives balance to our prayers. God's mercy and justice gives balance to our prayers. Abraham was aware that God was both merciful and that he will spare even the wicked on behalf of a few righteous. But he is also just. He sees and will judge all sins, Even those done behind closed doors in every sinful city in the world. And this knowledge of God's person, it really tempered Abraham's prayer. Some commentators I read really fault Abraham for stopping at 10, saying that he stopped asking God before God stopped giving. But I think that Abraham really sensed that he was at the limit at 10. If he went beyond that, he would no longer be pleading according to God's will. Maybe, I don't know. But God answered Abraham by rescuing Lot and his family, even though he destroyed Sodom. See, Abraham's prayer was balanced by his understanding of God's mercy and his justice. See, we we err in our prayer time when we think that prayer is a way to make everything happy. Make everyone happy. You hear all the time, oh, you know, so-and-so's in the hospital. Please pray for them. Sometimes I think, well, how should I pray? What should I pray? I mean, the assumption is that you would pray that they would get well, right? But is that God's purpose? Is that God's plan? Perhaps the person or a loved one has been running from God and, and somehow this is illness or this accident, something, you know, maybe, maybe it's there to get their attention. I don't know. Maybe God is graciously trying to reach some other lesson. I don't know. His, his purpose is, is not necessarily that we get instant deliverance from suffering, beloved. See, His purpose is that He may be glorified. We need to remind ourselves of that. And understanding God's mercy and his justice will lead us to pray that God would graciously use any situation, even the death of a mother in a river, leaving two young children. Glorify himself by somehow bringing someone to salvation or in submission to the Lordship of Christ. We see that prayer is based on the knowledge of God's purpose. Purpose. Last thing quickly, prayer must be on behalf of a world under judgment. A few few years earlier, in Genesis 14, Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot after they had taken him captive. And he returned all their goods to them. Even the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were part of that. And it would be easy for Abraham to see himself here as as better than those ungrateful, sinful pagans. He could have sat back and said, you know what? They should have learned their lesson. They deserve God's judgment. So many times, beloved, it's easy to look at the sinful world and say, you know what? They deserve what they get. I hope they go to hell. That's not our call. We have to understand that God has left us here with a message of hope and forgiveness and love that surpasses anything they could ever even understand. And that we're here to intercede in, in, on behalf of a world that's under God's judgment. Abraham humbly prayed as a sinner on behalf of other sinners. That's how we need to pray. It's easy out of our pride to look down on sinners who are suffering God's judgment and think, you know what, it serves them right. If they would just practice some morality, they wouldn't get AIDS. Or if they didn't worship certain beasts, maybe they'd have some food. It's easy to come to that conclusion. I mean, people are responsible for their sins, don't get me wrong. They have consequences. I'm simply saying that apart from God's grace, we would all be under His divine judgment, and righteous, rightfully so. We who know Christ, are all fellow sinners. And we've been called out of our sin by God's mercy. And we need to have compassion on others. Do you believe that prayer works? Do you believe that God hears the prayers of a righteous man or woman? In 1872, D.L. Moody made a trip to England, and he went there simply to rest, he had no intention of preaching. He just needed he'd been preaching too long. He just needed to rest. And while he was there in London, a, a fellow pastor spotted him and asked him to teach the following Sunday in his church. And kind of reluctantly, almost moody, agreed. Said, "Okay. I'll preach Sunday morning, Sunday night for you." And he spoke in the morning service And as he spoke, he said the congregation was literally dead. It's like no response at all. It's like they weren't even there. I mean, this is a powerful preacher. He wasn't used to this. He left the services kind of down and came back that evening. It says when he spoke that evening, the response was completely changed. Completely after the sermon, Moody asked those who wished to become Christians to stand to their feet. He said hundreds stood up. And he thought, you know what? Maybe you don't understand what I'm asking. Sit back down. And he presented the gospel to him again. He said, now, if you want to make a commitment to Christ, stand to your feet. And even more stood to their feet. And he thought, They're not, they don't understand what I'm telling them. He didn't want to just quickly act like they were converted. So he said, you know what, we got a prayer room over here and we need to come over here and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you a little further about this. Well, when they got to the, the, the prayer room, they had to get chairs and everything because there's just so many people. He went through the whole gospel presentation again and everybody was, yeah, yeah, full blown, we, we want to make this commitment. And he said, you know what? Those of you who are serious about making this commitment, come back Monday night and the pastor's going to have a special service just for you. They all left. Moody was done. He took his boat ride back to to Dublin. The pastor held that meeting in that church that Monday night and it was packed. Over 400 people made professions of Christ, more than that were even there the Sunday previous. And when Moody heard of this, because the pastor actually sent him a, a, a telegram saying, you need to come back. You don't understand what's happened. We're overrun. We, we need you to, 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 to continue to preach. God's working. And so he took a boat back. And, and he realized that something happened between Monday morning, or Sunday morning and Sunday night. And he went on and he, he, he preached there for, I think, 10 days. And he sensed that someone must have been praying for this church. And he began asking among the congregation. And finally, he was led to Marian Adelard, who was a bedridden girl. Couldn't come to church. She had some form of, of ailment that caused her just to be twisted and distorted and suffered greatly physically. She spent, as a result of that, many hours in prayer for her church. And she had heard of this man, D.L. Moody, and she had been asking God to send revival to her church, but she could never really go because of her ailments. And she heard of this man in Chicago, and she said, Ben, bring this man to my church. Maybe he could reach the church. And when her older sister returned from that lifeless morning service that first Sunday he preached, he told Marion that this man named Moody from Chicago had preached there. She spent the entire afternoon praying. God, this is the opportunity. I'm praying. I'm begging you, God, do a work in the hearts of the people. She prayed daily for the ministry of D.L. Moody as long as he lived. I mean, I don't understand personally why or how God works out His eternal plan in cooperation with our prayers, but He does. Don't ever forget that. Knowing God's purpose to call people for Himself from every nation, knowing God's person, that He is both merciful and just. Someday we're going to have a joyful meeting in glory one day. And hopefully we can run into some people who can tell us, thank you for interceding for me. Thank you for praying for my soul. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we acknowledge that prayer does work. That prayer is a wonderful spiritual exercise that that we need to be involved in more clearly. And Lord, it's easy sometimes in our theology to sit down and understand that your sovereignty and, and your power and omnipotence and everything, Lord, is just so overpowering. It's we, sometimes we just throw our hands up and say, hey, you know what? Why even do anything? But that's not what you call us to do. You have chosen somehow to use us, mere mortals, in your plan, in your methods whether it's through prayer, whether it's through evangelism, whether it's through reaching out to a neighbor or a friend. Lord, if that wasn't the case, the second we were saved, you'd just jet us out of here. We'd just be gone. We'd be in glory with you. There'd be no reason for us to be here, but there is a reason for us to be here. It's to share the glorious message of Christ, to pray and to intercede for those who have yet to hear, for the lost, for the sick, for the hurting. Because you will work through the prayers of your people. And Father, we pray for each individual here this morning. We pray if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, that you will do that work, that sovereign work of salvation through the power of your word and your spirit. That you will show them the sinfulness of their condition. That the only remedy is Christ. The only remedy is looking to the cross. You can't dig yourself out of the hole you're in. It doesn't work that way. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You simply trust in Christ, trust in God. That's what he desires you to do. Ask him to help your unbelief. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We pray that you would just bless us as we depart and uh, just give us a good day and a good week for you. We pray for our fellowship time afterwards that it would be a blessing. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.